Welcome to episode 303 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Wednesday, 20th of July, 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. Widening a city street to squeeze in more motorists often goes through on the knot, but dare instead to devote space to cyclists, and many times all hell is let loose, with fear-mongering about increased crime, elevated pollution, and even worse, congestion. Bizarrely and frustratingly, the planning for bike infrastructure often gets bogged down in nimbyism, arcane budget negotiations, and think-of-the-disadvantaged tropes that never get raised when it's car infrastructure being laid down. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, I discuss these issues with urbanists Sarah Stoddard and Zoe Kirkus of Denver-based non-profit City Thread, who reveal how, by taking communities along with them, the Final Mile Project and People for Bikes enabled five US cities to build 335-mile networks of cycleways in only 24 months, several years ahead of schedule. The Final Mile is a really exciting program that was a partnership with People for Bikes and a national funder, myself, Zoe, and City Thread, which we'll get to. Third partner, Kyle, um, all worked at People for Bikes previously. Um, the Final Mile really set out um, to answer a hypothesis that we believed that cities could move faster when implementing public projects, specifically mobility projects. I would say everyone on listening in um, has experienced um, a dream mobility network project that you know takes over a decade to implement. And we really wanted to ask um, US cities the question is, you know, is it possible to move faster, partner better, engage more honestly, and then actually deliver better quality mobility network. And I'm really emphasizing the network piece, um, a network of comfortable, safe, and convenient connections for people who walk, bike, take, tran- take, ugh, pardon, take transit, and also drive their car. So also kind of removing this single approach, single project approach. And what we discovered is the answer was yes. Um, we had the privilege of partnering with five U.S. cities, Austin, Denver, New Orleans, Pittsburgh, and Providence. Um, and they constructed 335 miles of new safe and connected bikeways, moving those projects from concept to completion in only 24 months. Um, mm-hmm. And they're now on pace to fully build their planned networks 25 years earlier than expected. Because famously and annoyingly, routes for cars and for motorists kind of go in, nobody even questions it. They just, they just go in and nobody votes on it. it just, they just go in. 
and routes for for pedestrians and and possibly even transit but certainly certainly for pedestrians and cyclists they somehow need to be voted in and and that can take many years to to actually get past that stage so what you're saying is you can cut past that that is exactly what we're saying through polling across the united states we know that on average 65 to 70% of residents of voters um, regardless of demographic and really location um, in terms of where they live, support protected bike lanes. They understand that um, a variety of options for mobility uh, helps reduce traffic congestion, um, you know, benefits climate change, et cetera. What our communities have been doing is um, not supporting our elected officials, not supporting city staff, and letting the vocal minority um, the mm-hmm. individual with the power and privilege who can call a mayor on their cell phone um, mm-hmm. to really hold up and water down potentially end projects. And we're working to communicate, use political campaign strategies um, to help cities uh, deliver projects that we know people want. OK, I, I definitely want to uh, dig into uh, not just the uh, the what, which you've kind of described there, but I absolutely want to get into the, the how. You know, how did you do this? That That's going to be the, probably the most interesting thing for people to, to, to take on board and see if they can uh, replicate these things around the world. But first of all, let's let's go into what City Thread is. So City Thread uh, is a partnership between Sarah Studdard, joining me here today, uh, Kyle Wagenschutz, and myself, Zoe Kirkus, and we um, formed a nonprofit just a few months ago. Uh, Kyle and Sarah started off in February. I joined them in April um, as a nonprofit organization, um, consulting firm, uh, group that wants to work with cities, local partners, um, community-based organizations, elected leaders to do exactly what Sarah just described in the final mile. And um, we all used to work for People for Bikes. It's a national bicycling organization. It's a great group. And we felt that we would be able to focus better and deliver more if we kind of branched out on our own and and focused our energies on doing the great work that the final mile demonstrated was possible. So um, we are super excited to be, you know, talking to a lot of cities and uh, hoping to kind of spread the word. And tell me where you're both actually physically situated right now. So I'm in the Northern England. Where, where are you guys? Uh, uh, Zoe, I am in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Nice. And Sarah is currently in Denver, Colorado. Also nice and also famous uh, for uh, bikeway networks. Um, so you're, you're hoping to, to make what's happened in Colorado after the last 20 years become more common in the rest of the, the US and certainly in, 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 in the bigger cities, yeah? Absolutely. Really, a city of any size can follow what city thread um, is delivering to cities which is our mobility playbook not only in the in north america but we do believe we have um some models that could also be applied globally so why why the final mile where's that coming from 
Yeah, I would say that we talk a lot uh, in the U.S. about first and first mile, last mile connections. You know that we have transit systems that can get you generally from kind of close to where you live to generally kind of close to where you work or go to school or need to shop. But those first and last mile connections are the the tricky bits that really you know present the barriers to people using an option besides an individual. Um, car to get where they need to go, and so if you solve for that first mile and last mile, if you get them from the their door to transit or all the way to their destination um, in a comfortable, safe, and accessible way, then people are willing to consider options besides their car. If you can't do that safely, then it's it's kind of off the table for a lot of people. Now I'm guessing each city is is clearly going to be different. But in your playbook, do you go in with a an idea that a city's got to have a set number of miles of bikeway network? You know, in, in effect, almost equal to the the network for for motorists. Uh, do you have to have a set number of transit routes? What's what What does your playbook involve in in templating? Great question. I would say we look at the U.S. acknowledging that our street and road network um, far exceeds uh, the ways that people can get around um, outside of a single car. So low expectations on that piece. What we are really looking for is, um, is there elected leadership that understands the value of having their residents have a variety of options to get around town? And are they willing to think boldly um, and move quicker, push against the status quo, particularly in the U.S., where infrastructure projects just take like it's a glacial pace? Um, Second is we believe that the best uh, bike advocates are not necessarily people who ride bikes. So we are wanting communities that either have existing diverse coalitions that represent public health, workforce development, climate, et cetera. Um, or understand that there is an opportunity for residents and community organizations um, to partner um, and campaign together. And then thirdly, it's a you know city staff that is excited about being able to be bold and, and move faster. Um, and then kind of back to the question around sort of metrics, we're really we really believe that if a community has a commitment to a network, any percentage um, that that network is built out is a benefit. Um, the five U.S. cities um, that we just discussed um, all reached 50% of completing their bike network in those two years. So that means they're halfway done um, with their planned bike network. Austin, by 2025, will have completely built out their current planned mobility network which I don't know if anyone in the U.S. has done. I'm unsure what you do with that plan. I don't know if you frame it or shred it or put it up on a shelf. Um, So really looking for kind of those key stakeholder groups and then a commitment to high quality, um, safe and protected networks. Yeah, that's my next question to actually define bikeways. You kind of just said it there, though. So so basically it's got to be protected for it to be considered uh, part of, of of the network. We're not talking about shadows here. We're talking about curbs. We're definitely not talking about shadows. 
Um, that is an unfortunate um, <laughs> piece of paint that has been sold to engineers and bike advocates for far too long. Um, Zoe, do you want to share kind of what our definition of protected and separated is? Well, I would say that we definitely focus on what's comfortable and safe and in on busier streets, for sure, that means separated. But it can also mean neighborhood bikeways, um, you know, slow residential, comfortable streets that people are already riding their bikes down with their kids to get to the park or or get to a nearby store. Um, but identifying kind of where those are and how those routes might connect. So wayfinding can play an important role there. Um, off street trails and paths that already additionally usually exist in a lot of places. Um, I, in my previous position, I funded a lot of bike infrastructure projects. And usually the first thing that goes in is, is a multi-use trail. And people are really excited to have those and they are very well used. So that trail network, um, even social paths, neighborhood, slow neighborhood streets, plus those protected um, bike lanes on busier streets all together kind of form what we consider to be a safe, protected, comfortable network. I would just add that intersections are also part of the network. And so ensuring that, you know, whether it's a curbed protected um, bike lane on a busier street or an intersection, you know, in your neighborhood, that when we're talking about complete, we're, we're truly talking about providing people with the same experience they get when they're driving in their car. Very little doubt you're going to get to your destination um, and kind of creating that connected network to ensure that people biking and walking have that same uh, consistency. Now, uh, Pete Buttigieg is has, he's walking the walk, talking the talk, all that kind of stuff. But is, is the money uh, coming to cities uh, from, from, the, from the Infrastructure Act? Is, it, is the money likely to be there in the future for, for putting a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about here actually physically into, into on the ground? Well, I think the, the Infrastructure Act is a huge... Um, inspiration and message to cities that the federal government is interested in investing in this network. And the cities that I've spoken to are, you know, really excited and also really interested to see how that comes down the pike. Um, but I'll just note that for the final mile cities, none of them used federal funds. They all used local money to build that infrastructure. And while we're super excited about that infrastructure bill, you know, those dollars that are going to be coming, the reality for federal money is that it's usually pretty cumbersome to apply for. It takes a while to actually arrive. And so mm -hmm. you can't, if you're going to build quickly, you can't wait for that federal money to, to start. And cities, in fact, have other sources of money and they can direct it um, to starting that infrastructure and knowing that the infrastructure bill will hopefully support additional improvements down the road. You're getting a huge kickback in the U.S. at the moment. Uh, for the, the 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 increase in in, uh, in the price of gasoline um, and the cost of driving, do you see that as something that you don't want to gloat? You don't want to say, you know, that that's that's absolutely what we need here because you, you'd get shot down in flames. Uh, but is it something that you think will absolutely benefit you? Because this is not something that's probably going to be the next you know few months. This is going to be you know, down the the line. It's going to be increasingly expensive to drive. Yeah, well, you said it. We're, we're not, you know, I mean, we're not 
Um, we, Sarah drives, I drive, we recognize that people have many reasons for needing to, you know, use personal vehicles and in no way, I mean, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, like the home of, um, <laughs> driving a car and how else, mm-hmm. you know, did God intend you for, to get around for heaven's sake. So, um, you know, but I think you raise a good point that the increase in gas prices and the technical technological improvements that we've seen come about in the past few years really sort of set the stage for people to consider other options besides their individual vehicle. So e-bikes, e-scooters, um, shared micromobility. Um, I just saw a picture the other day of a of a new UPS quote unquote truck that's pedal assist that fits in a bike lane for deliveries. Um, all these different options are now available. So people, you know, have other choices. And when gas is getting up to six, seven dollars a gallon in the US, you know, people are really interested in seeing what other ways they have of getting around. And now there's legitimate options. And so we want to build on that of like, hey, you can you can get an e-bike, you can give up one car, maybe that's doable for you. And then the other piece though is having a safe way, safe place to use that that e-bike. You know, you're not going to take your kids out um, if you're going down a 45 mile an hour road with cars whizzing by you and you only have a stripe of paint separating you from them. So I think the the gas prices, the technology improving, more cities kind of, you know, um, being very serious about addressing climate change issues and seeing um, reduction of cars on the road as a real and needed um, part of how they address that are all kind of coming together to help uh, create this moment. Because it's, it's the one less car thing. It's if there are if there are fewer cars on the road, that's a benefit to the individual motorist for sure. For sure, get other people out of their cars. I mean, okay, it's tough to get an individual out, but as long as other people get out of cars, you kind of. Yeah. You know, I mean, number one, it's safer for everybody when more people are on bikes. And number two, you know, like I have neighbors who are like, oh, I'm not getting on my car. And I'm like, yeah, but you want me on my bike? Because that's one last person that's, you know, trying to get out of our neighborhood at rush hour mm-hmm. on Monday morning, you know? So mm-hmm. that's a good reason why if even if, and and that's been a central part of um, the final mile and city threads approach is that we're not trying to tell anybody that they have to get on a bike. That's not our interest. We're just saying that it's up to everyone's benefit to make it safer and easier for maybe not you, but your neighbor to get on a bike. Hey everyone, this is David from the Fredcast and the Spokesman, and I'm here once again to tell you about our amazing sponsor, Turn Bicycles at www.turnbicycles.com. T-E-R-N bicycles.com. Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. Speaking of of being able to ride every day, as a spokesman listener, I'm going to bet that you are the go-to consultant for your friends who want to ride but aren't enthusiasts and need some advice on what to buy. In that case, you may have people in your life for whom you just haven't been able to recommend just the right bike, considering their stature, age, mobility issues, or just plain hesitance to get back on a bike. Finally, those family members and friends can experience a new bike day with the all-new Turn NBD. Get it? New bike day NBD. Okay, the NBD has been specifically designed to be confidently easy to handle and easy to ride, even well, even for those folks who might be, as Josh Hahn, team captain of Turn Bicycle says, are 
smaller in size and have a hard time finding a bike that fits, or older riders who might not have ridden a bike in a while, or riders who might have balance or physical issues, or riders who are just intimidated by the sheer size and weight of the average e-bike. As Josh goes on to say, the NBD will be refreshingly easy to hop aboard and ride. Now, how can Josh be so confident in that? Well, it's simple. The NBD has the lowest, longest step-through opening of any premium e-bike. So if you know someone with a knee or a hip injury or, or somebody who just can't lift their leg over the top tube of a regular bike, this alone could make all the difference. Plus, the NBD is designed with an ultra-low center of gravity and a longer wheelbase. And what does that mean? Well, it means that it makes it easy to balance and handle. And with a lowered bottom bracket and motor, the NBD is stable for all riders. It particularly inspires confidence for shorter cyclists because they can easily get their feet on the ground when they come to a stop. But the MBD isn't just for shorter riders. As a matter of fact, it adjusts in seconds, without tools, by the way, to fit riders from 4 foot 10 to 6 foot 3 or 147 to 190 centimeters. The NBD is also super comfortable with its upright riding position, swept handlebars, suspension seat post, and wide 20-inch balloon tires. Need to load the NBD into a car? No problem. It folds flat in seconds. How about getting it into a smaller living space? No sweat. The NBD includes turns vertical parking features so you can roll the bike into a small elevator and park it in a corner of your apartment. Now, with a max gross vehicle weight of 140 kilos, that's 308 pounds, the NBD can easily carry an extra passenger and plenty of cargo. With up to 27 kilos on the rear rack and up to 20 kilos on the front rack. And in fact, it works with a wide range of turn accessories and with most child seats. As I've said before, and this is important to me, really important, safety is a core value at turn. And that's why the NBD frame and fork have been rigorously tested by one of Europe's leading bike test labs. That's also why Turn chooses to use the Bosch motor and battery system. It's one of the few systems on the market that meets and passes the UL standard for battery and electronics safety. Read the news and you know how important that is. Now, the NBD comes in two models with prices starting at $3,899 or €3,999 and bikes are going to start arriving in stores in Q1 of 2023. For more information about the NBD or any of Turn's wide range of bikes, just head on over to TurnBicycles.com. Again, T-E-R-N Bicycles.com. We thank Turn for their sponsorship of the Spokesman Podcast, and we thank you for your support of Turn. Once again, thanks for allowing me this brief introduction, everybody. And now, let's get back to Carlton and the Spokesman. Thanks, David. And we are back with Sarah Stoddard and Zoe Kirkus. Give me uh, the elevator pitch on the, the City Thread Mobility Playbook. I, I know you, you, you kind of this is all a secret source thing, and you'll, you'll want to uh actually uh, get cities to come on board to, to do this but just summarize uh, the how how do you physically uh, get cities to put these uh the, the, these mobility networks in so fast so the how i've got to acknowledge the why which is city leaders face 
a variety of challenges. Um, and we are also, as communities, failing to unlock mobility-based solutions that help solve for those challenges like climate change, housing affordability, distrust in government, income equality, et cetera. Um, so what the mobility playbook that City Thread is bringing to a community near you, hopefully, is by creating an aligned partnership between elected officials, city staff, community partners um, that establish a mutual beneficial goal um, that they all agree on. In this case, it's building a safe, comfortable bike network in a short amount of time. And we do that by ensuring that those three stakeholder groups are resourced, that everyone who comes to the table has the information, the funding that they need um, to be the best partner that they can be. And so from an elected leader perspective, persuasive media campaigns, polling, city staff, we streamline political engagement and construction activities to accelerate mobility network implementation, and community advocates are resourced to do what they do great, which is grassroots organizing, community events, um, you know, local grant making to directly support um, residents on the ground. And with sort of kind of that how, um, we know that cities can move quickly um, and deliver high quality places for people to get around their city um, in a very short amount of time. And how white is this? How middle class is this? Perhaps not in on reality, but maybe in just perception. That's a great question. I'll start, but I, I know Zoe uh, loves to talk mm. about this subject as well, which is, you know, we can all have a peace, peace, you know, we can all feel good about getting where we go, where we want to go. If we all have kind of a piece of the road, access to the road. And because sort of our ethos is not um, behavior change, it's, it's acknowledging the power and privilege that white people in America have to make a variety of choices, whether it's to get in their car or their electric vehicle or their e-bike. Um, and it's also acknowledging that there are identities and communities in this, commu in this country that have um, been barred from um, a lot of the access that the current kind of white supremacy model in the U.S. Um, has supported them. And so, you know, by working in cities like New Orleans and Providence, uh, we've seen that we're able to create diverse coalitions with diverse elected leadership that represent a variety of identities and that really look at mobility as a, through a lens of anti-bias and anti-racist um, as a connection to um, creating a more just and fair world. And I will pause there because I just had a brilliant thought and I lost it. So I'm going to turn it back over to Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just to pick up that thread, what we found in the final mile was, as Sarah mentioned, these really put together these really diverse coalitions of people who were supporting these shared visions. And the shared vision wasn't always centered around, I want to ride a bike. A lot of times it was centered around, I want my neighborhood to be comfortable, to be safe. I want my kids, my grandkids to be able to go out and play without worrying about a car speeding down, jumping the curb and hitting them. I want to be able to 
I get down to the corner store with my kid, you know, on a bike or on their scooter. I want, um, you know, a place that feels vibrant and alive and um, where, you know, kind of the life that I want to have is is realized. And part of that is usually not having cars driving down at 45 miles an hour, like that, that vision, like we can all kind of envision that lovely neighborhood residential street and it has people outside enjoying that space and um, usually, you know, just an empty space with only cars is not the vision that we have in our heads. So when we build these coalitions, it's not saying you got to want bikes. It's saying, what do you want? What do you want in your neighborhood? How are you coming together to support that? And what can be part of that? And, you know, is getting to where you want to go or your kids getting where they need to go kind of part of that? And what does that look like? And how do we weave those things together? Um, could, so the group- sorry for interrupting, but could that just jumped in my head that could that not just be, well, I want more car parking. I want somewhere, you know, easier to, you know, to drive at 45 miles an hour. I want to be able to go 55 miles an hour on these <laughs> streets. If you, if you leave it up to people, wouldn't that just be if you genuinely left it up to people, but just well, I want I want to make driving easier. What's your problem? Come on. Well, do you, do you want to live on that street? That sounds like a highway to me. I don't want to live on a highway. So, when we talk to people, the the places they most want to live don't look like that, and they often and I think you raised this point, Carlton, is that um, we you know kind of that. Uh, privileged culture assumes that everybody has access to a car. So naturally you want to be it to be most efficient if you're to, for your car to get from A to B. But the reality is that most people, that a lot of people, especially in urban areas, don't have a car. So they're relying on other um, other modes of transit already. They're relying on the bus or the train. They're walking. Maybe they're riding a bike. Um, they're already relying on that. And so we're just kind of glossing over the the fact that reality that a lot of people don't have access to a car when, when we as white privileged people kind of say, let's make it easier for the cars to get around. Well, that's not actually serving everybody in these neighborhoods in in certainly in the uk i'm I'm guessing also in the in the us uh those those high speed roads those those highways with 50 miles an hour plus uh streets roads strodes uh uh, as they're called um uh, often people of color live on those kind of highways right now lower income people often live on those kind of arterial roads now so how are we going to be making anything that's going to be good for them when our city's genuinely going to be wanting to to rein in those arterials? That's a great question. I think it goes back to, I A, don't have a solution today. Um, I think if I did, I would hopefully uh, be making a lot of money that I could give back to communities. Um, but I would say that our diverse coalitions that we're building, that are being built locally, that are resident-led, are at sort of the intersection of the question you just asked, which is looking at policy at a local and federal level around housing affordability, workforce development, um, stopping more, you know, kind of working to stop highways to expand acknowledging that we cannot build streets for cars like we can't build that does not solve traffic congestion um, or climate change 
Um, and so it just becomes a, a policy as, and then kind of a true practical um, effort at a local state and federal level. Um, and I think there's great examples of Providence and Detroit and Baltimore that, you know, had highways that ripped and separated mm. um, communities, usually communities of color. And they have, through federal funding and local support, um, built green spaces and parks and neighborhoods um, over those highways and reconnected neighborhoods. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of national groups that are really fighting to take those strodes back um, and have the residents decide what they want to do with it. And can I ask you both individually, um, how long have you been working professionally in this sphere, perhaps even before People for Bikes? How, how long have you each individually been been working in, in, in uh, this area? So I've been working in kind of the specific area of sort of bicycling and mobility for coming up on 12 years. I've been working sort of my role within City Thread is um, as a grant maker and a um, grant recipient, uh, funding, you know, development, that area. And that work I've been doing for I'm going to show my age. Let me think Mm -hmm. Uh, 20, 20 plus 22 years. Okay. Uh, and I've been in the mobility space for seven or eight years. Um, I came up through bike share um, in Memphis, Tennessee. And then before that, my background is in communication, community organizing, um, and coalition building, really around all things that make cities great from local food to agriculture to arts, to economic development. Um, And so that's one of the reasons I'm personally so passionate about mobility is in my 15 years of experience, um, you know, mobility is a key thread and everything that makes a community great. We'll go for that lower number then, or say 15, 20 years. So that's a goodly number. So my question, and the reason I'm asking that question was, I now want to ask you, how has this space changed? So if you imagine back to when you started both started in this space and where you are today with what you're able to do with with City Thread and and and, and the fast build out of you know not just one uh, bikeway which used to be uh, how it used to be done but like networks how different is it and then imagine uh, ten years fifteen years from now how different it's going to be again so each each same question to both of you. Uh- I'll go first. (laughs) Zoe, is that okay? Yep, you go. (laughs) So for me, the the change that I have seen is a real reckoning. And and this is not necessarily um, for kind of the entire mobility sort of like culture in the U.S., but a real reckoning with how white supremacy has built our neighborhoods and the, and the places that people live in the United States, particularly around highways, which we've talked about, redlining, you know, for barring certain communities and identities from creating general generational wealth through purchasing homes. Um, and so I just see those conversations, you know, not, not being led by someone who's white, which is me, um, but by um, people that, you know, have been affected by 
by how our country has been built and how our country has barred um, people from being mobile, whether it's socially, economically, or um, getting from neighborhood to neighborhood. And then this is a little radical. It won't surprise Zoe. You know, if I were to look 15 years in the future, I like would not, I would like to never see the word bike advocate again. Um, <laughs> I think that we are um, doing ourselves a, a disservice by whether it's peer pressuring or over messaging, um, trying to convince people to choose one mode um, over the other. And I think that positioning the bike um, as part of just general community advocacy um, is, in my opinion, a much more successful and inclusive and really kind of comp comprehensive way to look at our cities. Oh, well, that was such a good answer. Now, how do I follow that up? So um, I guess when I look back to, say, 12 years ago, when I first started kind of getting into the mobility space, and I'd been riding my bike for years, mostly because I'm really frugal. And I, um, <laughs> and I just, a bike was like all I had when I lived in Chicago, I I took the train, but, um, or the bus, but, you know, since moving to Boulder, I mean, the bike was how I could get around and I didn't want to have to buy a car. So, um, but when I look back like 12 years ago, I was grant making. So I was giving out funding for in bicycle infrastructure projects and I would get, um, and fund projects that, you know, you, we all kind of joked about Sharrows, but I was like super excited when some, um, un you know, a, a, an, uh, an unusual suspect town or or city said, we want to put more Sharrows in. I was just like, yay, they're paying attention to bikes. Like I'm going to give them money for Sharrows. And then, you know, sorry folks, but now like I would no more give money for Sharrows than I would give you money to, you know, paint the sky green because it's just like, it's not really going to make a difference for people. That is not going to make people feel safe, safe and comfortable to get out on their bike. And so, um, I think the shift in sort of what our expectations are around um, how and why and where people will use a different mode of transportation besides a car have just really shifted. And for a long time, you know, we had these people telling us, well, I'm comfortable on a road. You know, I know how to obey the rules of the road and I know how to ride in that environment. And we thought, oh, okay, if we just teach everybody that, then we'll be successful. And then we suddenly woke up and said, no, like if I'm riding with my kid, like that's never going to make me feel safe. And if that's my only option, then I'm not going to ride. And so I think that that shift of like that, pardon me, guy that told us that we can just share the road with cars and to a different, a different understanding of we need to create safe, comfortable spaces that really serve everybody and that everybody can benefit from is, is a huge change that I've seen in, in 12 years. Um, and looking ahead to the future, um, I'm with Sarah that I don't want it to be around bike advocacy. I, I We don't have vacuum advocacy and we don't have you know, lawnmower advocacy. <laughs> you know, it's just a way you get around and you don't define yourself that way. Like I don't define myself as a cyclist. I'm a person that does a lot of things. And one of the things I do is ride a bike. And I just think we need to open that identity up to more people and not have it be so central. Um, it's not, it's not saying anything about anything else about who I am, except for how I want to get around. My people, cynical people, of course, say you're kind of hiding 
your bicycle advocacy, uh, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing uh, kind of thing. Uh, really, really, you want just loads and loads of, of bike-friendly streets and, and you, you talk about transit and you talk about pedestrians and, and what have you, but it's the bikeways <laughs> in reality. Yeah, you so, found this out. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure you and your skeptical people also believe that the bike lobby is like the Illuminati of bike advocacy. Um <laughs> sneaking around um but i would just say you know people are dying on our streets uh i mm. think traffic fatalities is like the top way to die in the u.s and that is horrible like that's awful and so i would say to folks that think i secretly want a protected bike lane on every street so i can uh cruise around every community i visit um, I would say that we know that protected, safe places for people to drive, bike, walk, reduce people dying. Um, and I think that's something really personally, Carlton, I'd be interested on your skepticism, hard to argue with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, too, that if we take, you know, like in the winter when it's really snowy and icy, where I live in Colorado, I take the bus. And uh, when it's beautiful out and a lovely spring day, I walk. And I think a lot of people just want to be able to choose the mode that makes sense for the weather, for their mood, for their physical um, state, for whatever, for where they're going. They just want to have some choices and not always be stuck with one. Okay. Uh, So tell me a bit more of where we can actually find out about City Thread and and the, the last mile part of it. So is there a website people can go to? Is there a Twitter feed? What, what, what can people go and have a look at when they're listening to this? Yes, we have a website. You can find us at citythread.org. We also are increasingly active of, on Twitter and LinkedIn at city three, citythread.org. And on both of our social pages, um, we have uh, links to videos, articles um, that talk more about the final mile and talk about, you know, what City Thread is going to be up to um, now and in the future. And individually, tell me about your your where people can find you on social media. If if indeed you, you are on social media, not everybody is. Uh, so I'm I'm really not on social media very much. So pretty much LinkedIn. You can find me, Zoe uh, Kirkus, uh, on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, besides that, I leave it to my kids. They would have to do a tutorial <laughs> and they would be very frustrated with the tutorial they would have to give me on um, being able to, you know, answer <sighs> that. <laughs> <laughs> That's very yeah. honest of you. <laughs> there you go, Carlton. You can cut that one if you want. <laughs> It's it's really fascinating, not only starting your own organization, but really seeing um, pretty quickly where your gaps are. And I feel confident that the three of us were probably more on the Luddite side of uh, technology <laughs> and social media. Mm. Um, uh, and you can find me. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm also on Twitter at Sarah Stud, where I don't tweet about anything related to bikes. Um, but... I think I have interesting perspectives anyway on other things. (laughs) She does, really. 
Thanks to Sarah Stoddard and Zoe Kirkus there. And thanks to you for listening to episode 303 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the-spokesmen.com. Episode 304 will be out early next month. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.